Welcome to a brand new series. This is series five of the podcast and episode one and a real special for you today because my special guest is Brian Adams talking about his new album and some of the classics like Run To You, Summer of 69, his song with Tina Turner and loads more. Brian Adams, my special guest. Also try out a Hyundai Tucson hybrid sports utility vehicle and see what that is like. In fact, let's find out right now on the Rock and Road podcast. Today I have a Hyundai Tucson, spelt Tucson, and it is the ultimate plug-in hybrid version that I have. Uh, prices range from between 28000 to 37000 depending on the colour and spec and all the extras that you can get. Looking at it from the outside, it looks like a decent looking sports utility vehicle, SUV. It has square wheel arches slightly unusual it has some lovely lighting it's got a light bar across the back and also zigzag lights down the side the front has got an enormous grille a bit like a mercedes eqc uh, but i do like those big chunky grills at the front and uh, generally speaking very nice looking from the outside this particular one has 19 inch alloy wheels and the dark chrome effect radiator grille at the front so it looks nice but let's see what it's like on the inside well, the first impression is it has a really gorgeous dashboard which wraps right around you and highlighted by two silver lines of trim going all the way from the doors right round the front of the car and round the side door as well. Uh, but lovely uh, silver lines going right round it. And the screen much more integrated than they were. A lot of them were quite high up, poking out from the dashboard. This one is blended in. Now, the advantage is that it looks gorgeous the downside is, is that when you're driving, you do need to look at the sat-nav. You've got to put your eyes quite low down to see the sat-nav. And I'm in sat-nav mode, um, which is a decent sat-nav. It's all touchscreen, so that's uh, definitely worth using. If you want to use your phone one, it does have Apple CarPlay and Android Auto as standard. Now, everything is touchscreen buttons. There's no physical push-in-and-out style buttons. However... At least there are buttons and it's not just a large screen and you've got to scroll through the screen to try and find what you want. And like a lot of Hyundai's, a fantastic centre console. So one of the main reasons I like Hyundai's is that there is a really lovely chunky centre console for your drinks, for buttons such as, well, obviously, uh, drive, neutral and reverse and park, things that make the car move and stop. Um, and some other buttons as well for the heated seats, heated steering wheel. It's got its own designated button. Same with the parking camera as well. Just switching the car on now, pressing the camera button. That's great. That is there, very easy to use. This is one of the main advantages to Hyundai's that I love. Also, another thing about Hyundai's is when you indicate left and right, the driver display also has a camera to tell you what is on your left and right. Brilliant inventions, really, really useful. The sunroof on this is fantastic. One button and it opens a screen so we can have daylight but still be warm. Keep pressing that button and the roof comes up as well. That comes back to my head area but the passengers in the back still get the daylight above their heads as well which is nice. So really airy. Let's go and have a look at the boot. Right this has got 620 litre boot. Less if you've got the hybrid uh, to do with the battery pack but it does have um, a great storage area either way. And uh, yeah, lots of room. Now there is a button here to put the seats down without having to me then go round to the side door and put them down. Here it is. That is superb. Right, they're down at the touch of two buttons. All the rear seats are down and I haven't had to walk to the side doors to pull them down. 
Seatbelts have gone with them though, and they're kind of like dangling in, in the way a little bit. So let's see what's gone wrong here. Okay, you would need to make sure the seatbelts are tucked away first. The middle passenger seat, the seatbelt comes from the ceiling, which is a little bit annoying because it's kind of in the way. If you were looking at one of these, it would be comparable to a VW Tiguan. And uh, just seeing now what it drives like. Let's get it started. Pressing D and let's go. Lovely chunky steering wheel with extra bits. If you're on a motorway and you want to have your hands in different position, it's got these other bits lower down that you could just slot your hands in, which is quite nice. Oh, it pulls away beautifully. It's definitely got some power behind this one. By the time my son's learned to drive, they won't need to drive a manual car because all of these new hybrids and electric vehicles are automatic. Driving over some road ramps here, suspension is quite hard. Can really feel that. It says there are 379 miles in the tank, in the petrol tank. I have put it onto EV mode and let's see if it uses any petrol because I've had this trouble with hybrids before. You put them in EV mode, but it still uses the petrol. I want to know this. In a petrol crisis, could I still use this car provided it's got enough electric power to do some short journeys in or will it keep drawing on the petrol? Let's find out. So it's on, it's already gone down. It's on 378. I'm in EV mode and I've lost a mile in petrol. How? Okay, it's dropped down to 373 miles, even though I'm in EV mode. So it is using the petrol. Conclusion, hybrids are not really electric vehicles. They just save you a little bit on fuel, but not that much. Okay, picked up Dexter from school. Dexter, how are you finding this particular car? There's curtains, you can open the top. Uh, very good and it's electric has very much uh, very nice yeah there's leather seats is it comfy yeah it's very comfy has heated seats heated wheel it's very good that's the rest of me thank you dexter so um if you want to get one of these uh, have a look at the photographs and all the footage on the socials at rock and road oh look Dexter, you were right. Those speed cameras there. Oh, hi there, Brian. Shall I just get started? Oh, with that voice, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, please welcome to the show, Brian Adams. Hi, how are you? Very well, thank you. Good. So you've got your 15th studio album coming out, So Happy It Hurts. How did this album come about? Well, we were on tour just before the lockdown and suddenly we were told there was no more concerts and I kind of saw it coming because I was sort of following the news and everything and when I got to finally got everybody together and we were corralled um, what, 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 what am I going to do now so I just got all the receipts out of my pockets that had scribbles on them and started putting together song ideas and I had a, I had a young engineer uh, with working for me um, he used to make the tea at my studio and the two of us just day by day just started putting together tracks and I couldn't I couldn't um, I couldn't get my band in the studio because nobody was allowed to leave the house yeah so piece by piece I was sort of struck sort of structure the songs myself 
Okay, so um, I can see that the album has been definitely inspired by that period in time that we all went through. The song's about freedom and optimism, helping each other, um, which really comes through in the album. And me being a rocker, I particularly like this song called Kick Ass. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, I see that John Cleese is at the start of that. How did that come about? Well, we were having a lunch together um, and I, I, I kept listening to him speak and he's very funny. I was a big Monty Python fan anyway. And, I, and some, somewhere during the time I said to John, I said, you, would you like to come and do some narration on a song I'm doing? He went, of course. And, and so we got together a couple of days later and he put down this, this great sermon, which I, I'd written the sermon ahead of time. Um, so it was all sort of ready for him, and, and he just he took to it like a fish to water. So he he did this especially for this song. I mean, that's just brilliant. Yeah, I love that. Anybody listening needs to hear that song. It's called Kick Ass. Another one I want to mention, and I can't not mention this uh, because we just had International Women's Day. Um, but the song called "I Ain't Worth Shit Without You." Tell us about that song. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, let's see. It was a, an idea that was sort of started um, by Jim Valance, my co-writer on the song. And what can I tell you about it? I mean, it's just... Well, it says in the notes here that um, women rule the world and that's not a bad thing. Is that true? Did, is that the sentiment of the song? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Good. Well, I'm glad we've all cleared that up. Yeah. Okay, so that's the new album. So we're looking forward to hearing more of that. That's out now. So going back to 1980, what was it like starting out as, as you know, a new musician compared to, say, what it's like today? I mean, how on earth did you get noticed initially? It was really, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. In fact, in fact, my, by the time I got to my second album, I wanted to call the album Brian Adams Hasn't Heard of You Either. Because it got to the point where it was like, who? No. Who? No. And every time I was trying to get anywhere, it was always no. Um, but I always took no as a yes and just sort of soldiered through all of it. And just with a bit, a bit of determination and, and, and a bit of luck, managed to scrape, scrape my way under some early tours. And I opened up for the Kinks when I was 21. And that sort of opened the door to another tour. And suddenly I became an act that you could sort of depend on as a good support and would sort of get things going. Yes, because you also toured with Foreigner as well. I mean, what was it like touring with these these huge bands like Foreigner and the Kinks? Oh, it was really good. And we went on to do things with Journey and, and all these different American bands that were really big at the time. And it was so helpful because we were getting to, we were, you know, it was hard, it's hard to get your, your songs played on the radio. Even today, it's hard to get your songs played on the radio. So it's, nothing's changed in that respect. In fact, maybe it's more difficult now than ever. Yeah. But, but um, I suppose the, the ambition really was just to be able to write some songs and be able to have some sort of gig. I, I didn't have a sort of end goal p- plan or didn't have any aspirations for stardom. I really only just wanted to be a songwriter that could rock out and along the way I sort of got my voice got a bit better and better and yeah it was really it was it, but, but uh, getting back to your question the, it was really tough in the beginning and we, we at some po- at some point we were doing three gigs a day we would be playing a noon hour show at a high school 
we'd be opening up for a band at 7.30 p.m. until sort of quarter after eight, and then at 10 o'clock we'd go off and do a club gig. And it was like that for a long time, and I think that sort of perseverance and, well, stupidity really, because we didn't really have much of a life, we, just, we were just gigging all the time. But when people ask me now about, you know, what, what do you advise, you know, young songwriters, I say try and get a gig because that's where you learn, that's where you learn to hone your craft, that's where you learn about what you want to do next, and that's how you get better as a singer or a guitarist. So uh, I always think playing live is, is one of the best things you can do as a musician, and that's what we did. Yeah, I think I completely agree. When I've gone to my head of music and I've said, oh, can you play this new band? The first thing he says to me is, who are they touring with? Who are they supporting? Because that is so important to get noticed. So um, obviously it worked for you. And so you had this unique uh, feature as well as the good songwriting. You had an incredible voice, that kind of husky voice that everybody liked. When did you realise that you had this unique selling point? Uh, I don't know if I ever realised that, um, but still getting away with it, really. <laughs> I I just thought, uh, I remember sort of walking to school singing uh, Stevie Wonder songs because I was really into uh, his album called Songs in the Key of Life and I used to think that Stevie was, I still think Stevie is one of the best singers ever and and yeah I was, I was sort of singing to myself and then I sort of started a band and there was about five of us and we were all sitting in a room one time we were going to record a song and I, I remember the song it was uh, Blind Faith Can't Find My Way Home and which was originally sung by Stevie Winwood and the, the, everyone looked around and said who's going to sing this and, uh, and no one put their hand up and I said well I'll have a go and at the end of it there was just this sort of quiet in the room nobody said anything they, everyone sort of looked at me I said what? And then no one said anything still, so I thought, oh, maybe it was really terrible. And, but listening back, I've got the tape still, and it was okay. And so I think from that point, I just became the singer in the band. So you didn't have any lessons, it just literally happened quite naturally like that, almost by accident. That's an incredible story, I didn't realise that. Well, it just went from strength to strength because all that extensive touring really paid off for you. You had your first top 100 single, Lonely Nights. Uh, what was it like achieving that? Yeah, I mean, just uh, it was kind of interesting because I remember, I remember where it broke out of. It broke out of upstate New York, and there was one radio station and one DJ there that sort of championed the song, and it, that ended up sort of affecting another station and then suddenly I had a rock hit and you know it was on the rock charts so it was I was exactly where I wanted to be and just bubbling under I wasn't getting up there but I was I wasn't in the top 10 or anything but at least it was on there and it was it was something and it just it made me feel like all the work that we'd done was starting to pay off because people were paying attention to the songs and that's all you ever want as a songwriter Yes. And then, of course, your next album, Cuts Like a Knife, 1983, a couple of uh, songs that charted there as well, Straight From The Heart and This Time. But it was really reckless that changed things for you. And you were only 25. I, I believe it came out on your 25th birthday. I mean, could you appreciate um, that intense sort of success at such a young age? I think Cuts Like a Knife was the song that, that changed everything 
because it, it really was a really good song uh, live and it basically put me on rock radio everywhere so whatever I came up with next if it was as good as that was sort of guaranteed it was going to get played and so and that's what happened I came out with Run To You and you know it was released just on my 25th birthday and I didn't really know what was going to happen of course you don't you have, you have no way of knowing if an album is going to be a big hit or not but I had a feeling that I'd done something right and and I, I can only say that because I drove everybody mad when I made the record and just worked really hard I mean for example songs like Summer 69 we recorded that twice in, in its entirety and demoed it probably two or three times before we got the master that we have now and you know that that uh, that sort of devotion to getting a certain sound was something that I was quite particular about and I still am really well, I mean, every single song was an absolute winner on the album Reckless isn't it five top 20 singles what would you say is your favorite song off that album well I always I always liked Run To You because uh, it was sort of the mystery song that happened at the last minute on that record and I'm not taking anything away from the rest of the songs because they're obviously I really love them and but there was something about the moment when we recorded that song which was uh, Claire Mountain who's my co-producer on the record at the time he said listen man do you have any more songs and I said well I, I have this song but I'm I'm not I'm not sure about it because it's got this strange background vocal part on it and he said well we just go out and teach the band it and, and you know let's try it you need another song <laughs> and so <laughs> and so I went out and taught the band the song and we did a take of it and when I turned around to look back into the studio everyone was stood up the engineer was stood up assistant engineer was stood up and this they was looking at me and said you know they're waving to come in and listen and came in and listened and that's the, that's the performance that you hear now on the record it was um, it was a first take of the song the first take that's the one we hear today yeah I mean I did I end up fixing a couple of things like there was a few flubs in the vocal and there was we had we added some percussion in the middle and we added a, a lead guitar in the center but the performance itself of drums bass and rhythm guitar and, and vocal was pretty much what you hear on that record that is incredible and you mentioned summer of 69 I mean the, the subject of that song was that you just sort of reminiscing to those good times yeah, of course, and it's it's reminiscing um, on every summer, not just not just. Um, well, actually, you know what? It's it's really it's kind of bittersweet. It's looking back on the summer that you sort of figured out what love was about. So I, I think the, I think the idea originally the song was going to be called "The Best Days of My Life," but that I sort of threw that title of "Summer '69" in as just sort of a laugh. The other one I like on that album is "Kids Wanna Rock." In the same way that I like your song "Kick Ass," I think they've got that same kind of vibe. Well, that's kindly enough, really. <laughs> Again, that was really fun. And I, I wanted to sort of say that that, that was a, um, a really fun song to put together because I, I hired a drummer I'd seen in a nightclub uh, to come down and, and try some, some songs. His name was Pat Stewart, and uh, Pat's on tour with us now. If you can imagine that, you know, 30, 40 years later. But he was playing in a ska band in a nightclub around the corner from where I was recording and I just happened to walk in 
and hear him play and I thought wow he's got such great energy so I went up to him at the club and I said hi I'm Brian you, would you come down to the studio tomorrow and, and just make, you know make some make some noise and he said oh, I'd love to so he came down and he recorded three songs on the record he recorded Kiss Him on a Rock your song he recorded Summer 69 and he recorded One Night Love Affair yeah, well, they're absolutely amazing songs. And the other one, uh, It's Only Love, uh, how did that come about with Tina Turner? That song sort of came together because her producer at the time was a guy called Carter. And Carter and I had worked together on another band uh, previously when I was a young songwriter. And I'd written some songs for this band called Prism. And he called me and said, listen, I'm working with Tina Turner. And I was like, whoa, great. And this is before Tina had Private Dancer. And I'd gone to see Tina. I used to go to the gay clubs and see Tina play, and and it was just you know her with the you know with the with her dancers and it was fantastic. And I actually met her backstage when I was about 22, and and had written this song called "Lock Up Lock Up Your Sons" because Tina's in town, and she didn't didn't like that song, but. <laughs> I didn't stop me. Carter called me and said, hey, Brian, I'm working with Tina. Do you have a song for her? And I said, wow. I said, I'm in the middle of making this album called Reckless, so I, I, I don't really have anything offhand because I'm kind of recording everything, but you know, would Tina like to come and sing on one of my songs? And I didn't hear back. And then fast forward a couple months later, I heard that Tina was playing with Lionel Richie. She was the opening act for Lionel Richie. And I wrote a letter to her manager because there was no emails at the time and I included a copy of It's Only Love that I'd cut and I said, would Tina be interested in recording this? And again, I didn't hear back until the day before they arrived in Vancouver and they said, Tina wants to meet you. Can you come back to the show? I thought, sure. So I came back and I remember stood, being stood backstage uh, in this sort of hallway full of people and I saw this hair coming down the hallway of it was Tina. And she's like, I hear her saying, where is he? Where is he? And someone said, he's over there. And he, she came up to me and she said, I love the song. I said, can you come and record tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> she said, yeah. And she came into the studio and without saying too much about it, other than she was incredible. Um, I remember when she left the studio I look, looking back into the room because I was in the room with her when we recorded it and I looked back into the into the control room and I again I saw the engineer sort of stood there and I went in and I said I hope you got that on tape and they also looked at me and said yeah we got it and it was almost like a, a tornado had come through the studio and just blown everything apart and so one of the best moments for me ever recording for sure it just sounds incredible. And thank goodness they had hit record. So in 1985, you were the first artist to open the American side of Live Aid. How did that feel? Well, I, I, I get asked that question a lot and I don't really remember much about it. All I, all I kind of remember is Jack Nicholson uh, introducing me. And, and then I was shoved on a tour bus off to the next gig. So I didn't really get to hang around. Do you think you can't remember it because it was just sort of a bit mind blowing in a way? Truly, if I didn't, if there wasn't a video of it, I wouldn't have remembered any of it. Wow. 
Well, then coming on to, if you don't mind, I'll just move up to the 90s now. And of course, I can't do this interview without mentioning everything I do, I do it for you, which here in the UK spent 16 weeks at number one, the longest running chart topper in the history of the UK charts. Um, were you aware of how crazy it was over here? Because everybody was talking about that, this song at the time. I mean, do you remember that? Oh, yeah, I remember it. Everybody, everybody was just talking about it nonstop. Well, I, see, I wasn't here uh, when, it, when, it, when it went on. I, I was um, on tour somewhere. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I got reports every week. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean, who would say no to that? I mean, I guess, like... <laughs> it was, well, it was in the news all the time, every week. Can he do another week? And all the other songs that were trying to get in the charts that couldn't get to number one because of this one. I mean, it was a massive news story, and, and we still talk about it today, you know. Well, you know, I think there's something about that song that I think people that never buy records went out and bought that record. Do you know what I'm saying? I, th I think it just it touched people in, in a way that you know certain songs just catch that sort of zeitgeist, and it just did. And at the time when we wrote it, I mean, I just thought it was a really sweet little song. I never thought much about it. And when it came out, it was only Mutt Lang who who was my co-writer on the song with Michael Kamen. Mutt, Mutt was the one that said to me. He looked at me after we were done it, and he said, "You know, Adams, He says, "I think this is a universal. This song is quite universal." And he was—he was—he sort of foresaw it before, and he—he never—he doesn't hand out compliments on music that that easily. So when he said that, I was like, oh, I wonder if he knows something I don't. <laughs> well, it definitely worked, didn't it? I'll tell you a funny story about that song, which I haven't told before. Which is, when we were recording the song, um, I, at some point I came into the, stu the studio and I said, "Hey, Mutt, I think the song is—we've—we've we've cut, we've cut it too slow," and. He said, really? I said, yeah, stand up. And I sort of grabbed him and I sort of, I said, play the song. Now I said, let's just pretend we're dancing to the song. And we, he said, I, said, I said, don't you see? It's just, a, it's just a little bit too slow. He says, yeah, but we, we haven't got time to re-record it. And so what we did is we sped the tape up to the right, to the right uh, speed and then I re-sang it. But if anyone that's a musician out there will note that the song is in C sharp, but it, it was actually recorded in C, and so it's got this—it's a, a strange key for the song. So I wonder if that even that sort of uh, contributed to the the fact that the song was different, you know, because it's in a strange key. It's in uh, it's in, in a key that no other song would ever be in. You'd never write a song in C sharp. So I, I just wonder whether that had something to do with it, but... Yeah, the uniqueness of it there, something subliminal has affected us all, hasn't it? I'm not a musician, but it sounds like it's not something you would go out to do, but the way that it's happened accidentally like that has, has really made it quite unique. Yeah. Okay, because um, a few years later, coming up to more recent times, uh, you got together with your longtime collaborator, Jim Valance, again, and you've written the music for Pretty Woman, the musical. Yes. Um, did you enjoy working on a musical? Yeah, really a lot, and it was it was quite different. I mean, I'd actually, I'd actually contacted Disney years and years ago, uh, back in the the noughties, about trying to do something with that film because no one had ever made a musical of it. And I thought, God, it'd be such an interesting story to try and make a, a musical of. And they said, No, we're not doing that. And then one of my friends, who's uh, he's a director, he's a director of Beauty and the Beast, uh, the Broadway. Uh, version of the of the of the film 
uh, he's, he, he said to me, listen, I think someone's making that. You sh can I put you in touch with them? And I said, yeah. And so that's how I got the gig. I, I went down and auditioned. Fantastic. Yeah. I, I, I sat down with Jim and I said, let's write a couple of songs so when we go in there, we have something to present. And so we wrote a couple of songs. We went in and we had these sort of ideas about what this could do, what that could do. Maybe this could be a part of, the, of, the, of this scene or that scene. And the director looked at me and said, okay, thank you very much. Uh, you two need to leave now and so we can talk about you. And we were, I think we were up somewhere up, up, up on the west side of, um, of New York City and we walked all the way back down to Soho. And by the time we got back to Soho, my phone rang and the producer phoned me and said, do you want the gig? I said, yeah. I bet you did. Especially as you were the one that first of all said, wouldn't this be great as a musical? So you must have been thrilled. Yeah, absolutely. And also, pandemics aside, you tour a lot. I mean, I've read a statistic that you tour somewhere in the world 10 days every month. Is that yeah. right? And yes. Do you, do you love touring? That's what we used to do. I mean, uh, up until the, the lockdown. So, yeah, I do love touring. And as you probably know from this conversation, that's kind of what I do. Okay, well, um, it's been fascinating to chat to you, to hear about the album and a little bit about the past as well. And um, we can't wait to see you live. Thank you, Leona. I'm going to be uh, in finally doing my uh, shows at the Albert Hall, which were booked. They've been postponed twice in the last two years. Um, we're coming back to play on the 9th and 10th and 11th, three nights. We're doing an album, a different album each night. And so if you get a chance, come down and check it out. I would absolutely love to. Cannot wait. Thank you so much. All the best. Thank you for listening to the podcast this week, especially if you are a loyal and regular listener to the podcast. I'd love to hear from you. Or maybe you're just trying it out because I had Brian Adams this week. I've always got some exciting guests, so please do tune back in to the Rock and Road podcast. Coming soon, a Honda special. I've also got the Ducati Monster to try out. And if you like Jethro Tull, I'll be speaking to Ian Anderson from the band. Thank you for listening to the Rock and Road podcast. Rock and Road.